0: Um, as you're turning or gazing upon the uh, screens behind me, seven years ago on this day, it was a Friday, and it was an important weekend, and some of you might remember this, but on, uh, on August 8th of, what was that, 2014, I uh, asked Sarah Beth to marry me, and so she, she said yes seven years ago. Uh, it was an important weekend. You're thinking that's pretty important, Uh, because the next day was August 9th, and we came up as a newly engaged couple for a meet and greet with Blaney Baptist Church, and I preached for a vote seven years ago Tuesday uh, here to become the pastor, and so I didn't start until officially until September 14th, but uh, I'm narrowing in on seven years with you guys, and uh, it's been a ride and uh it's been good so anyways i was i was feeling nostalgic so i wanted to share it acts chapter 9 would you stand as i read verses 1 through 19. now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the lord went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that as he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and through his, though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three, he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said to him, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. The Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come as those who are grateful for the treasure of Jesus, that knowing you, Lord Jesus, there is no greater thing. And we thank you that you have made yourself known to us, that you have won us to yourself. You've paid our debt upon Golgotha's tree. Your blood ran. You died and gave your life buried, but you rose. We trust you. We believe that in Christ we have the atoning sacrifice. We have forgiveness. We have justification. We have righteousness and sanctification. We have glory to come. We are declared righteous today. We are adopted into your family. We have the gift and the seal of your Holy Spirit, Lord. We have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, all afforded to us because of what you did, your sacrifice and victory. So Lord, would you help us? Give us eyes to see and ears to hear from you, that your word would come in the power of the Holy Spirit and accomplish your will. So, Father, I now pray that whatever proceeds from this mouth that is not of you would fall to the floor and remain unheard, for the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Lord Jesus, you said heaven and earth may pass away, but your word will never pass away. So, Lord, would you speak? Father in heaven, speak. Lord, speak. Your children are listening. Have mercy in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. So we're continuing on in the book of Acts. This next chapter, uh, the New Testament begins with the four Gospels. Gospels. And then it enters into Acts, which is the explosion of the early church. The book of Acts is written by Luke, a Gentile who also wrote the gospel of Luke. And you can probably think about the gospel in Luke and Acts as volume one and volume two. That Luke records all that Jesus came to do and then everything that he began to do and teach in his gospel. And then he he recounts how God the Holy Spirit is active and activates the early church in the book of Acts. He notes some shifts, but the Acts 1-8, remember, serves as the outline or even the thesis, maybe, of the whole book of Acts. You will receive power and be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and to the end of the earth or to the uttermost parts of the earth. That the the Holy Spirit is empowering the church to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to uh, to uh, uh, concentric circles. Right. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we are still participating in that. We're still feeling the, the reverberations and the empowerment of Pentecost is still with us in the power of the Holy Spirit. But there's a, a key piece that needs to be recalled if we're going to understand how the nations are going to come and be subjected to Jesus by faith. And we see it typified or example illustrated for us in the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. You might know him as the Apostle Paul. And it's, don't think of it, sometimes we think of Saul became Paul, like, you know, Jacob became Israel. Uh, it's probably not like that, but don't get too hung up on it. It's not as though he went from this, anyway. So Saul of Tarsus is the one who is a, a hardcore radical Pharisee. Um, he, ha, he was there when Stephen, the first Christian martyr... Was martyred. He was gathering the coats. He was approving of the execution. And now we learn as this persecution has erupted at the beginning of chapter 8, it has erupted in Jerusalem. It's propelled all of these Christians except for the apostles. It's propelled them out into the surrounding areas and the surrounding nations. And that might be how Ananias arrives at Damascus. We don't know. But Paul now seeking to imprison. In, enslave judge possibly condemned to death those who are the followers of the way those who are followers of Jesus he has papers to go to Damascus and what we need to see that this is a passage that is the conversion of the apostle Paul this is how Paul becomes a Christian and there's something you need to know about it before we kind of press into it that Paul his conversion and his commission from the Lord Jesus is unique Because he's an apostle, right? There there aren't any other Apostle Pauls running around today. uh, That his conversion and his commission of what the Lord Jesus gave him to do. Paul is the author of 13 of our New Testament letters. There are 27 letters. He's the author inspired by the Holy Spirit of 13 of them. We don't have any more scripture writers, Okay. So that's what I mean. His conversion is unique and his commission is unique. But what we have in Saul's conversion are, if you will, there's a template of the gospel he's going to preach. Paul is struck there on the road to Damascus by the, the, the vision of the resurrected, ascended Lord Jesus. And he is immediately, by this bright light, he hears a sound, he hears the voice of Jesus, and he is struck blind, though his eyes are open. That in doing so, he becomes as those who are going to hear his gospel preached in the nations. He becomes a living example of those who are spiritually blind. You're thinking, Jacob, you made that up, you're reading it upon the text. Let's look. Acts chapter 26, Paul uses his, if you will, his testimony of his conversion three times, or it's mentioned three times in the book of Acts. You have it here in Acts chapter 9, you have it in Acts chapter 22, and then you have it again in Acts chapter 26. And I want to take you to Acts chapter 26, which, was that our Bible reading today or yesterday? Tomorrow? Yeah, today. Thank you, row uh, Baptist. Thanks. Um, But Paul is giving his defense here in Acts chapter 26 before King Herod Agrippa. We're not going to get to everything that's happened up to this point. But there's a description here as he is describing this story to King Agrippa of his conversion and call. In verse 27, excuse me, verse 17 and 18, he's recounting to Agrippa what the Lord Jesus said to him. And he says, you're going to be rescuing you from Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. So Jesus is sending Paul to the Gentiles. And notice verse 18, describing his mandate as Jesus, the risen ascended Lord, who appears to Paul on the road to Damascus. This is his commission. This is his call. This is what he's telling him to do to open their eyes so that they may turn from their darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So Jesus is giving him this commission. He's giving him this work. And the work of Paul preaching the gospel among all of these nations is that he's going to be opening the eyes of the blind. So that they move from darkness to light, from the domain of Satan to the the rule of Christ. And so Paul struck blind and later on at the reception of the Holy Spirit, he sees. He becomes a living illustration of what God does in conversion. You understand where I'm going? So Paul becomes here on the road to Damascus, a visible, if you will, a visible illustration of what the Lord does in conversion. So I want to give you the, the need for conversion change, the power of conversion change, and the result of conversion change. You might have that outline in your bulletin or you can simply follow along. But the idea here is that Change is not only possible, but it is necessary if we are going to follow Christ, if we're going to have new life in Him, if we're going to have eternal life with Him in heaven. Change is not only possible, it is necessary. And this is such a countercultural moment where we need to articulate the necessity and the reality of Christian conversion and the new birth. Because we are told over and over and over again in our culture that real fulfillment and real life is found simply by realizing whoever you think yourself to be. Whoever you dream yourself up to be today, live into that and you will find purpose, joy, whatever, fulfillment, flourishing. And the Christian gospel says, no, outside of Jesus, if you continue to pursue your own way, you will live in this life at odds with your creator, and you will live forever and eternity at odds with your creator, distant from him and condemned by his judgment. So conversion is necessary. It is a complete substantial change. What we are talking about in Christian conversion is not simply behavior modification. The Christian gospel, hear me if you hear, I hope you hear a lot, a lot else after this, but if you don't hear anything else, the Christian gospel is not simply behavior modification. It's not simply, hey, go quit chewing tobacco, quit smoking, quit swearing, quit doing all of these things and do these things. That is simply behavior modification and too often people mix up the call to conversion and the call to Look like you're living a righteous life. It is not behavior modification. Obedience, as we'll see at the end, flows from conversion, but it is not conversion. The change is needed. Why is the change needed? Here we have Saul in verses 1 and 2 who is still breathing threats and murder against disciples of the Lord. This is not just judgment. This is not just condemnation. He is not a magistrate. He is not a judge. But he is acting as one who is condemning Christians. And this is flowing, as Jesus says says elsewhere, that murder and accusations, all these things flow from the abundance of the heart. That we see here, despite Paul's righteous religious trappings, he is in fact a sinner. In need of grace. He, in fact, has a rotten, hard, cold heart. So it is simultaneously possible for you to put on all of the religious garb to look like a Christian, to look like a Pharisee, to look like a religious person, to look like a morally good person while having a stone cold, dead heart to God. Your outward trappings can deceive not only yourself, but they can deceive other people. The conversion is needed because Paul has done everything humanly possible to be righteous before God. And he has failed. He has tried everything. He has been Top shelf of the Pharisees. He's of the, he's a Hebrew of the Hebrews, he says elsewhere, a Pharisee of Pharisees. He's trained by Gamaliel, who is this highfalutin Pharisee teacher. He's been trained up in the law of God, and yet his heart is cold and rotten. We need to recognize the need for conversion goes to the heart. We need heart conversion change we need mind change we need our hearts change we need our wills change we need old to new we need new life so i'm going to three reasons that the need is necessary that conversion change is the need it's not just for you to start acting right which some of you need to do probably but we need change And this is what God tells us and he offers us in Jesus. The first reason is blindness, spiritual, moral blindness. The Apostle Paul is struck blind by this vision of the Lord Jesus in his glory. And therefore, he is an illustration, remember, of our spiritual blindness outside of Christ. That's what he says in 26, 18, that you would open the eyes of the blind. Go with me, if you will, to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1 through 6. Paul is describing his ministry. Same guy, a few years later. Since therefore we have received this ministry of the gospel, as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the things hidden because of shame not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by means of manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So basically saying, we're preaching the word, we're not adding all the garbage around it. We're trusting God's word. And even if our gospel is veiled, if it's hard to see, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So that spiritual blindness, refusal to acknowledge who Jesus is, is a demonic oppression upon unbelieving people, that they're unable to see, that there is a fundamental inability to see Christ for who He is. Naturally speaking, the natural person is not inclined towards God. In fact, that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. It struck my mind, so I'm going to read it to you. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 14. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. So there's a fundamental to the lost, unbelieving person. And if that's you here with all of your religious trappings and with all of your goodness, you believe that you have, then you are unable to see the glory of Christ, not because you don't have enough evidence, not because you're not convinced enough, not because there are so many options and we don't know. You're, you, you cannot see Christ for who he is because you're the God of this world. Satan himself has blinded your eyes. And you cannot see things that are spiritually appraised. You need new eyes. We need, outside of Jesus, we need new eyes. Verse 15 of 1 Corinthians 2. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one or judges all things. So the first reason or the first cause that conversion is the need is that is blindness, that there is an inability because we can't see spiritually. Second reason is enslaved, that the person who is lost in their sins is not only blinded in sin by Satan, but they are dominated. They're under the dominion of Satan in their sin. Again, refer back to Acts chapter 26, verse 18, that you would open the eyes of the blind and that they would be delivered from the domain of Satan and brought into the kingdom of Christ. As Paul says in in Colossians 1.13, that we've been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son, but we were enslaved. Chains, shackles. Imagine it. I remember before they told the, tore the old CCI down, down by the river. You know what I'm talking about? Carolina, I don't know what, it's Correctional Institute. And, and it's seeing those cells, they were, I mean, they didn't feel much bigger than, than this with a little bed. and the, I mean, it's just like a movie with the bars and a little tiny window looking out and the bars that would rattle shut. Dear one, if you are in your sins today, you remain imprisoned. In your sin, alienated from God, you must understand your condition to understand your need. And this might be a good place to, co- to have a quick conversation about the will. We hear often about the, that our wills are free. And I want to say to you that your will is free from external coercion. There is no one holding a gun to your head to do anything. But your, dear one, you are enslaved, including your will, it is enslaved to sinful passions. That you choose, your will operates according to your affections, according to your nature. And if your nature, your heart, and your affections are cold, rotten, and hard towards God, then you are in bondage and you can choose all you want, but your free will will not liberate you from that cell. So we're enslaved. Um, you can read John 8. Jesus gets into it with the Pharisees. Uh, whatever sin a man commits, he is enslaved to it. But if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Beautiful part of John chapter 8 that I don't have time to read to you. So the need for conversion. We're spiritually blind. We're spiritually enslaved. We're bound, including our wills. And then we're spiritually dead. We're dead in our sins and trespasses, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. This is all bad news. But if you're going to see the brilliant glory radiating from the good news of Jesus, you need to swallow this prickly pill of bad news. Okay? Because until we do, you're going to continue and our culture is going to continue to look to ourselves for the good news that we cannot supply. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 Do you see, you see some, some of the components we've already talked about are there, but you're spiritually dead. That, a, that there is a, a necrotic state to the unredeemed, to the unsaved soul. You are, if you are outside of Jesus today, you are like Lazarus in the tomb four days stinking up the joint. But the problem is, is that Lazarus somehow probably knew he was dead, at least physically. And too often, those who are rotten up the joint, stinking up the joint, have no idea that they're dead. And they're just ushering in deadness and brokenness into their own life, into the lives of their family, into their workplaces, into their communities, all the while believing that they're finding fulfillment and pursuing their purpose. This is the rottenness of sin. So, okay, much could be said But the need for conversion change, there's blindness, there's slavery or being bound, and there's spiritual deadness. The power of conversion change. So if all of that picture you see in in point one, that Paul in verses one and two, for all of his religious spiritual trappings, his behavior and training, he could not rescue himself. There is a fundamental core inability to the lost person to save themselves because they're blind and enslaved and dead. So what do we need? We need sight, freedom, and resurrection. C.H. Spurgeon wrote this great little book called The Soul Winner. It's about evangelism, but he has a whole chapter where he says that the work of evangelism says we're about resurrection, that when you're sharing the gospel with someone, you're longing to see resurrection happen. I digress. The power of conversion change. What happens to Paul? Paul decided that one day he was going to get his stuff together. He had had a a rough go at work. His marriage was difficult and his kids were acting a fool. And so he decided that he was going to change his life. I'm going to go home. It's not what happened. The power of conversion is not rooted in fallen flesh. The power of conversion, the power of substantial change that reconciles us to our God is not found within. Some of the most damning, stupid advice that our culture gives to young people and old people alike is just follow your heart. Well, if your heart doesn't belong to Jesus, it is desperately wicked and it will lead you to hell. I don't want, I'm not, I'm not trying to pop your balloon, but maybe you need to have that balloon popped. You are not the solution. The solution does not come from within. The solution, because you are blind, because you are enslaved, because you're spiritually dead before God, all of it means that your rescue has to come from without. It has to come from an outside power greater than your own. Not only because of what you've cultivated in your sin, your blindness, your slavery, your death, but because you are in the grip of Satan you know that story where jesus is kind of enigmatic where he talks about the stronger strong man and no one raids the strong man's house unless he first binds the strong man. Well, dear, when someone, for someone to bind or tie up the strong man, you need a stronger man. And Jesus is the stronger man who binds Satan so that he may deliver his people as captives, liberate them from the grip of sin and Satan and death, and bring them home. So the outside power of conversion change is God. God is the one who does the converting. God is the one who does the changing. God is the one who who brings sight to the blind. He brings freedom to the captives. First of all, the captives who are captive to Satan and captive to sin. And he's the one who resurrects the dead. He brings spiritual life today and he brings eternal life when he raises our bodies from the grave. So just go back to Ephesians real quick, just to illustrate it. So I've read all the bad news. First three verses. First three verses. Verse four. But. What's the solution? We're children of wrath just like the rest. We're dead in our sins and trespasses, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience. What's the solution? But God, being rich in mercy with the great love with which he has loved us, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Too often we think about the grace of God as some namby-pamby, Q-tip, cotton puff movement of God. The grace of God is the conquering sword of Christ to deliver his people from the grip of sin, Satan, shame, guilt, and death. But God, being rich in mercy, he's he's made us alive together with Jesus. He's raised us with Jesus. He's seated us with him in verse 6. So that, in verse 7, in the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The power is God's. So there is a particular exterior exterior, powerful movement of the Holy Spirit upon the soul of a person to make them alive. An exterior powerful move of the Holy Spirit to make them alive. And this is regeneration. This is the new birth. John chapter 3. Where Jesus says you, you must be born again. And then he says the spirit blows wherever he wishes. The spirit is the one who brings life. But that's not, that's not all there is to conversion. That is the passive part of it. The passive part of conversion is the regeneration. The new life that the Holy Spirit gives to the spiritually dead. That the, the summons of Jesus in his effectual call, come forth Lazarus. That's what he says to the sin-dead sinner. But regeneration is the movement of God toward the sinner and conversion in repentance and faith is the movement of the sinner towards God. John Gill, the great Baptist theologian, who was, a, who was actually pastor of the same church as Spurgeon years before. You don't care, but I do. Um, he said this, he was one of the greatest Baptist theologians. Regeneration is the motion of God towards and upon the heart of a sinner. Conversion is the motion of a sinner towards God as expresses it, as, it as, as this other guy expresses it. But so regeneration is this movement of God upon the heart of the sinner. Conversion is repentance and faith back towards God. You see what I'm saying? So in the first part of that, You are passive. You are the swollen corpse on the the bottom of the lake who needs resurrection. The second part of that, you are an active participant saying, I'm going to leave my sin behind and I'm going to trust in what Christ has done. They go together to make up the powerful move of God to bring the dead to life. More to be said, but okay, let's move. Finally. So God is the power of conversion change. And if you're looking for some scriptures, go back to Acts 26, 18, uh, Ephesians 2 that I read, 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14, James 1, 8, by the, I love the New America Standard there, by the exertion of his will, he has caused us to be born again. Uh, in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, you see the power of conversion change is God. So finally... The result of conversion change. What does Paul end up doing? He is bro- comes to Damascus. He's blind. God raises up Ananias who lays his hand. Long story short, lays his hand on Paul. And what happens? The scales fall off. And he does what? He regains his sight and he got up and was Baptized. The reason there's a reason scripture over and over again says repent and be baptized because baptism is part of the first step of obedience and following Jesus. This is why we baptize believers. That's another train that I'm not going to hop on, but we baptize believers because it says repent and be baptized. Paul, in obedience to Jesus and his command, is baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he took food and was strengthened. Then Later on, I didn't read this part in verse 20. He's immediately proclaiming Jesus in the synagogue, saying he is the son of God. He immediately takes up the work that the Lord Jesus had given him. The result of conversion is obedience. The result of conversion is, among other things, like we're reconciled to God, we're justified before him, we're adopted into his family. But practically in your life, you have been reconciled to God, you have been changed by the powerful working of his Holy Spirit, as Paul says in, in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, I think, where he pours out the love of the Holy Spirit into our hearts, that you've experienced that, so now you obey. Greg Bonson said that we are not saved by obedience, but we are saved unto obedience. Jesus said it like this in John chapter 14 that if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It should be anathema to us. That there is a concept among us that one can accept Jesus as Savior and not have him as Lord. It should be a foreign concept to us that someone could accept Jesus as Savior and never accept him as Lord. Dear ones, if you never submit to the Lordship of Jesus, you cannot claim him as your Savior. I'm not saying that we're not people in process, that we continue to wrestle with sin. We continue to repent and trust in what the finished work of Jesus on the cross. But if there's never that moment where you bend the knee and say, Jesus is Lord, you order my steps, then you need to reevaluate your conversion. You need to reevaluate where you are before the Lord. Because the end of that passage in Ephesians chapter two, and this is the, I'm tying the thread at the end. There's a bow right here. That we are his workmanship, Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he created beforehand for us to work in, for us to walk in. So Ephesians 2, you have this whole, you're dead, God makes you alive, He gives you all of these benefits in Jesus. And now you are his workmanship, his, his masterpiece, his poem, so that in your life, as you walk out, live out the things that Christ has for you to do, you demonstrate the glory of the God who has redeemed you. So, here's the reckoning. Have you been converted? Have you been substantially, powerfully changed by the power of God? Have you heard, and usually how God does this is that you hear the word, and the Spirit takes the word as an instrument and works upon the soul of the sinner. This is why we believe in preaching. Because God has ordained it. Not just preaching like this, but communicating the gospel in verbal form. So, have you heard the word of God? Have you changed and been brought to Jesus by the powerful move of his grace? If so, praise God, walk in obedience. Consider what the Lord has for you to do where you are. In your home, in, in your work, and in your neighborhood, in your own heart. You have a role to play. You have an obedience to carry. You have good works that the Lord has laid out for you before the, before he... Before you were born. He has good works laid out for you. Ephesians 2.10. Some of you, and maybe some of you who are online. Maybe that's you and maybe this this is you. You need to repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus. If you're at that point, do not delay. Do not delay saying, has the Lord done this and done that? If you're at the point of saying, I want to leave my sins behind and I want to, I want to take on and accept what Jesus is giving me, then do it. Today is the day of salvation. Do not linger and do not loiter. Come to Jesus. You don't have to sort out your life. You don't have to fix all of the broken pieces. You don't have to quit your sinning to finally be ready for Jesus. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary. Come to me as you are. And part of this stirring up in you isn't a stirring up so that you can fall into the same trap of behavior modification. It's a stirring up so that you can abandon worldly schemes to fix yourself and come to Jesus, who is the only one who can heal our wounds, forgive our sins and make us whole. So would you do that wherever the Lord is leading you? Would you respond? Let's pray. God, you're great. We thank you for the conquering power of your grace. As we think about, as I think about my life and where I was and where I am, Lord, it astounds me. And it is all of grace. As Paul said elsewhere, it is by the grace of God I am who I am. Only grace, all of grace, to the praise of your glory. So would your spirit move in power now, using the instrument of your word, read, preached, heard, Would you move for your name, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.